Would you turn with me in the scriptures to the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And as we prepare to read God's word, and it's a good thing for you to have the Bible open because I'm going to go through uh, this whole letter bit by bit and kind of explain some of the imagery in there. So please do keep your Bibles open. But as we go to God's word, let's ask him uh, for the Spirit's guidance. O Lord, let us have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. Move us, comfort us, encourage us as we hear the words of him who walks among the lampstands. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 3, beginning at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one can take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the major and very exciting themes of the Bible is found in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 1. These words, many of, the, of you know them well, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And soon many people will once again be playing Handel's Messiah and hear that opening aria, comfort ye my people. Basically, that was the task given to the prophet Isaiah. He was to speak the word of the Lord to the people of Israel who were in exile and as they were going through a really rough time in their national history. Isaiah was commissioned by the Lord to speak words of hope in a hopeless age and time. 
He was instructed to tell Israel that while it may not seem to be the case to them, God was still on the throne. Remember that. Always remember that. Behind all the noise, behind all the violence of this life, we heard some of it this morning, behind all of that, God is on the throne. Behind all the opposition to the faith, behind all the challenges faced by believers, God is yet on the throne. That's a major theme of the book of Revelation. Actually, this final book was written to a church undergoing major persecution and major challenges. Now, there is no question that the Lord of the church the very one who walks among the lampstands knows what we are like as human beings. He understands and knows that we are weak and sinful and easily overwhelmed by all the challenges we face. He knows that we're prone to discouragement and that there are times when we feel incredibly powerless, particularly when the world doesn't seem to accept the message of salvation but instead seems to stand opposed to it. He knows what we are feeling, what we are experiencing. He's our chief high priest, able to identify with us in every way. And as he identifies with us throughout the scriptures, he speaks to us words of comfort and words of assurance. So as we've been going through the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, we have noted that every letter so far includes words of encouragement. Chapter 2, verse 7, to the faithful in Ephesus, Jesus writes them that he will grant them to eat of the tree of life. To the faithful in Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus writes he will give them the crown of life. To the faithful at Pergamum, Jesus writes in chapter 2, verse 17, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. To the faithful in Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 26, Jesus said he would give them authority over the nations, and they would rule with him, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. To the faithful in Sardis, Jesus writes, they will be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels, chapter 3, verse 5. And similar sorts of promises and wonderful images are passed on to the faithful saints at Philadelphia and at Laodicea, as we're going to see this morning and then also next Sunday morning. All such promises and assurances from the Lord are wonderful to hear. In some ways, one cannot hear enough words of encouragement in life. Ultimately, many of those words are words that keep us going. And if you've ever been encouraged in your life by someone, then you know what I'm talking about. And they keep us going because the Bible calls on us to run the race of life with perseverance, with energy, with strength, with excitement, with enthusiasm, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, as Hebrews 12 puts it. 
But these were especially wonderful words to hear for the members of the New Testament church. A church faced with incredible challenges, a church faced with incredible persecution at the hands of the Jews and of the Romans and of those who were unfaithful to the gospel. And in each case, in each of the letters, the Lord tells his people that no matter what may be happening in life, no matter how stiff the opposition may be, yet it's not the opposition, it's not the struggles in life that have the final word. He does. Though everything may be taken away from the children of the Lord, yet the Lord will grant them more than they could ever possibly imagine. All the promises and all the encouragement are seven different descriptions, if you will, of the glory to come. A glory that's beyond description and yet very real. The inheritance that God's children will receive from their Father in heaven will be beyond our wildest imaginations. And now as we turn to the letter to the church in Philadelphia, we are reminded that such words of encouragement are not intended to be words that we keep to ourselves. On the contrary, an open door has been placed before that church, and for that matter, our church, to make sure that we share the encouragement that we have in Christ, the hope that we have in Christ, to a world who is not very encouraging and to a world that's not very hopeful. We're called upon to share that good news. Christianity is not a faith to hold within yourself. It's for me, myself, and I. Not at all. Known as the gateway to the east, Philadelphia lay at the east end of the broad valley. And we're not talking about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but Philadelphia, this one here, where there's still some ruins. The trade routes to the riches of the Orient ran through Philadelphia out of the valley and onto the plateau to the east. The economy of the city was based on industry, on trade, and agriculture. To the north was volcanic land, well suited to growing grapes. The people of Philadelphia were rather prosperous. And the city was called Philadelphia. I think many of you know what the name of the city, what it means, but it was because of the love and the loyalty of a younger brother to the founder of the city. Philadelphia then is known as the city of brotherly love, after that Greek word phileo, which describes one kind of love. And if you remember the series of 1 Corinthians 13 that was preached here, and then we made the distinction between Agape love and phileo love and the eros kind of love. And the agape love was God's self-giving love. Phileo was that of a brother and a sister, a friend and so forth. And the eros was the kind of love that a couple experiences in marriage. Phileo, the city of brotherly love. There were a couple of problems or a couple of situations in Philadelphia. One was the fact that the city was located on a fault line. And so it was subject to earthquakes. And in AD 17, 
the city was indeed leveled by one of those earthquakes. Besides the issue of the fault line, the pagan emperor cult and idol worship was prevalent in the city as well. And these are important things to remember as we look at this, this particular letter to the city. Well, in the midst of this particular city on the fault line and, on, uh, in the, and, and surrounded by pagan emperor cult and so forth, was a relatively small church, the Church of Jesus, but a church of great character. This was apparently the youngest of the seven churches, one that remained faithful and loyal to the gospel and to the Lord. And it's appropriate, I suppose, that, that such a city, that such a church be found in a city named for loyalty and for love and for faithfulness. And it's to this particular church that Jesus wrote a letter of great encouragement, commendation, and comfort. Contrary to all the other letters that you've read, that we've studied so far, you will notice there are no negatives in this particular letter. And Jesus begins this way in verse 7. He identifies himself as him who is holy or the holy one. A title used in the Old Testament by God in Isaiah 40 and Habakkuk 3. And that title is joined to the true one. In Old Testament terms, that refer to the faithful covenant God of Israel. So he who is holy, he who is true, is the very one who will carry his work to completion. This wasn't... Susie or Johnny writing a letter to this church, but this was the Almighty God who is holy and true, the covenant God. And he will not allow his work to be stopped or his work to be hindered in any way by anyone. And therefore Jesus identifies himself as the Lord God, the covenant God, the head of the church, the bride, the very one who holds the key of David. Did you notice that in verse 7? What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. That's a direct quote from Isaiah 22, verse 22. And so if we go to Isaiah 22, verse 22, and find out what the story is there in order to understand what's happening in Philadelphia, we read that a man by the name of Shebanah was a corrupt and wicked steward in King Hezekiah's household. And such a steward, such a high-ranking political figure, had power over who could come to see the king and who could not. He had the power over who could enter Jerusalem and who was to be left outside. So he had power to open and to close doors. But this particular, this particular steward abused his power. And because of his wickedness, God was going to punish him and replace him with Eliakim. Eliakim, who was faithful and true, was made the new steward and so received all the authority and all the responsibility that went with such a post. And as a representative of the king, Eliakim was authorized to exercise full administrative authority in the king's name. 
The key of David is the key to David's house, which in biblical terms symbolized, represented, or anticipated the messianic kingdom. And so when we think about that, Eliakim had the power to open and close the doors of the king's palace and even of the city of Jerusalem and allow whoever he would to enter or to exit. And then if we think of the fact that the key of David, then representing the, the messianic kingdom, then that brings us to Christ. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Christ is the one who has received all authority. He has absolute power to control entrance into the heavenly kingdom. Interesting then that this character whom we hardly know of in the Old Testament, this fellow by the name of Eliakim, became a type of Christ. And with Philadelphia being a gateway city on the eastern trade routes, the members of the church would have understood the reference to the key opening and closing the gate. To know who was writing this letter must have been of incredible great comfort and encouragement to the church in Philadelphia. The Lord Jesus, the holy and true, the one with all authority, the very one who can open and close the gate, is writing the letter. And that one, with all that authority, says in verse 8, I know your deeds. The head of the church knows them intimately. Oh, they may not be a flashy church, but they were faithful and they were true to the word and true to the Lord. And then in verse 8, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. What a fascinating statement. Before we can understand that statement, we must recognize something about Philadelphia. As in Smyrna, the Christians in Philadelphia experienced trouble with the Jews. These were false Jews, verse 9. Listen to what Jesus calls them. Those of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I don't know about you, but throughout these letters to the churches, the way in which Jesus writes to his people and calls a spade for, for what it is, is always amazing to me. Oh, we are so careful. We're so tolerant. We don't want to say a lot of things about things, but Jesus calls them, they're from the synagogue of Satan. And we all know what happens to Satan in the scripture. He is destroyed. The Jews in Philadelphia, contrary to what the name of the city meant, were very aggressive against the church and had excommunicated Christian Jews from the synagogue and thereby, at least as far as they were concerned, they had closed the doors. They had excommunicated the Christians from the kingdom of heaven. These Jews claimed that only they had the key to the kingdom of heaven because they were true people from the house and the line of David. But then what's so cool, the very one walking among the seven candlestands, the very one who has the key of David, wrote to the Christian church that those Jews were wrong. 
they cannot close the door to the kingdom of heaven because they don't have the key. Christ has the keys. And these keys are ones that he's going to share with the church, the true Israel. And since those Jews had rejected the Christ, they thereby had also forfeited the keys to the kingdom. Jesus needed to reassure the believers that the door was always open to them. The door is always open to the true church, always open, and no one, not even Satan, can close it. Verse 8 continues, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The church in Philadelphia really was nothing special. They were young, small, poor, uninfluential. They were ordinary Christians living ordinary lives, but living faithfully, rejecting that which was opposed to God's word. And therefore, they were able to go on in spite of the opposition of the Jews. But it was tiring, and it was a struggle, and the Lord knew that. And the Lord, their loyalty to the Lord was commended. Well done, good and faithful servants. The door to the kingdom is open to you. No one can take it away from you. No one can shut the door except him who has the key of David, namely Jesus himself. The false Jews, the ones who rejected the Christ, can't open or close the gates of heaven, nor do they have exclusive rights to the place as they think. On the contrary, verse 9, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So what's going to happen is completely the opposite of what these Jews were expecting. I will make them come and fall down at your feet. That's an Old Testament figure of speech from Isaiah 60. There we read, the sons of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet. They will call you the city of the Lord Zion, the Holy One of Israel. And there are numerous other passages like that that look forward to the day when Israel, God's holy people, the Jews, shall triumph over the nations as they are established in the promised land. And now Jesus reverses this picture. Because of the Jews' rejection of the Messiah, the Jews have lost their special status in their role as the people of God. The church instead has become the new Israel, the new people of God in their place. Whereas throughout the Old Testament there are promises that Israel will be established and will cause their enemies to bow before them. Now guess what? The day is coming when the Jews will bow before the people of the Lord. And rather than hate the church like they did in Philadelphia, they're going to recognize that, hey, those people are loved by the Lord Jesus. Things are going to be switched around. Verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, or in other words, because they had withstood the false teaching of the Jews and because they had remained faithful, Christ was now going to be faithful to them. I will keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. The 
promise concerning the inevitable coming of the last days is consistent with what Jesus prayed in John 17. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. The hour of trial, interesting language, that period of tribulation that's prophesied to come upon the whole world just before Jesus comes back again in Matthew 24. But contrary to what many are suggesting, the church is not necessarily going to be removed from the earth through the rapture or anything and just watch the whole thing explode. The church will be there. It will continue to function, protected by a faithful and loving and true God. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. For Philadelphia, that signaled that soon the time of trials would be over and they would be established as permanent citizens in the kingdom. And therefore, for this young, struggling church, it must have was a joy to receive such a message. Amen, come, Lord Jesus. They must have prayed. For Ephesus, for Pergamum, and for Sardis, the coming of Christ posed a threat. For Christ was going to come with justice. And if they didn't repent, their candle stand would be removed. But the Philadelphians were looking forward to Christ's coming. They were looking forward to the completion of that which he had started. Verse 11, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Or as Jesus said to the church in Smyrna, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Even death doesn't have the final say. And then verse 11, verse 12. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. Doesn't say much to us, but the Philadelphians could identify with that language. In Galatians 2, 9, the church is called the pillar and the bulwark of the truth. So to speak about pillars was to speak about permanence and stability. They're still there. The faithful would be part of the furniture permanently before God. And remember also that Philadelphia experienced earthquakes and many times the people had to flee the city for safety. And now they receive the promise that they would be permanently in the presence of the Lord, never having to leave for anything, no earthquakes, no persecution, no famine, nothing. And nothing could destroy that temple of God. That's shalom. And that's true comfort. The comfort keeps coming. Verse 12, I will write on him the name of my God. That imagery makes us think of Jeremiah 31 and the writing of the covenant in our hearts. It makes us think of the imagery that God bears our names on the palms of his hands. It's branding imagery. Much like we experience when we have the sacrament of baptism, we're kind of branded in Jesus' name. And bearing the name of God means you belong to him. It's a symbol of possession. And according to Revelation 22, verse 4, those who bear the name of God belong to him. What comfort. And then it continues, verse 12. I will write on him the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. 
understand wonderful imagery of belonging. A believer's citizenship is in the new Jerusalem, is in the new earth. That recreated world that God is making perfectly. And then verse 12 continued again as if Jesus hasn't, as if what has been promised isn't good enough. And I will also write on him my new name. That's enough to make anyone sing hallelujah. Believers, the faithful are in a special way related to Jesus, the one who holds the keys of the kingdom, the one who through the shedding of his blood opened the gates of heaven. And the faithful then will be God's possession symbolized by the threefold name inscribed upon them. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's true comfort, says the Catechism. That's true comfort, knowing that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life, yes, and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What a letter. And then it ends with the usual refrain in verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let it sink in. Let it become part of his heart, his mind, his soul, his strength, who he is. Well, what has the Spirit said? The Lord has the keys to the kingdom. He opens and closes the door. No one else. The Lord is the one on the throne. No one else. The Lord opens doors of opportunity for us to speak words of encouragement to a discouraged and struggling world. Those who are faithful, those who endure, will be permanent members of the new earth. What a gospel. Comfort ye my people. Surely, when we hear a letter like this to Philadelphia, we are comforted and we are encouraged. Amen? <coughs> Father in heaven, as we hear the letter to Philadelphia, we are encouraged to persevere. We praise you, Lord, for your incredible comfort, for words of encouragement, for words to keep going. We thank you also that you are the mighty one on the throne, that all authority is yours, that you rule, that you reign and will for all eternity. And we thank you, Lord, that we may know that your enemies, death, all that stands opposed to the Christian faith, to us, to the church, to you, will not prevail. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.